0: Let's go to the book of Daniel in chapter 1, we continue our Wednesday night series through the book of Daniel. Because the house of Judah as a whole had rejected God, God has now brought the Babylonians against them, just as He foretold He would if they did not return to Him. And now the Babylonians are in control of Jerusalem. This is the opening scene here in the book of Daniel. It isn't time for Jerusalem's full captivity and destruction quite yet. However, with the Babylonians now occupying Judea, they have made it clear they are in charge. They have taken the best from the vessels of the house of God. They have taken the best from among the uh, children of Judah. But God gave them opportunity, amen, and they just refused to get right. And the house of Judah, though they had forsaken God at the national level, there were still people who were walking with God. They were serious about their walk with God. They were serious about the law and the things of God. And they wanted to honor God with their lives the best they could. And now they're going to have to learn to do that in a foreign land because of the consequences of their own nation's rebellion against God. We were introduced to four of these young men last week Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And God has always had his remnant. There's always been those who have refused to bow the knee to Baal, and those who will stay faithful to God no matter the climate that they're in. And these four Hebrews are going to continue to shine as lights in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. But still, this is very heartbreaking these captives were likely just teenagers. They're being torn away from their family and homeland, led into a foreign land. And though the Bible doesn't say it definitively, there is certainly room to suggest that these in the initial wave of captives were made eunuchs. In Babylon, these Hebrew captives were to be indoctrinated in the ways of the Chaldeans. They would be taught the Chaldean language, They would be given a Chaldean education, they would be fed a Chaldean diet, and they would be given Chaldean names. And last week, we considered how this was to destroy a nation without ever firing a shot. You capture the youth. And that's what we've seen in America. You take a young person raised in a good church on conservative principles, allow them to be indoctrinated by the world in their universities and in their schools and which are anti-God, they're progressive, and you can take someone who once was on solid ground and now they are on sinking sand. Most of the time, once they have made that transition, they'll go on to teach their kids the ways of the world as well. And some even pay top dollar for it. And you keep doing this long enough, and eventually a nation will erode. And and that's what we're seeing today. It wasn't another military's landing on our shore. But we willingly handed our children over to the Chaldeans. And the only hope that many of these children have left are some wise and gray-headed grandparents who are still walking with God and trying to give their grandchildren all they can about God and the Bible. So what's the solution? We saw last week, it's a Return to God and obeying His Word, where we're to teach them in the way. The things of God, we're to teach them in the way. We're to teach them when they rise up, when they lie down, when we sit at our tables. Uh, all the time that we're together, we're, we're to be teaching them about the law of God. And we need to do all we can because the wickedness of the world is all around us today. There's no avoiding it now. It's right out there in the open, it's in the libraries, it's in the schools, it's on the billboards. You read it in the checkout lines, it's in the news, on the television, on the internet, our phones, and it's at work. And so we must all have the Word of God, regardless of our age. We must all have the Word of God at the ready in order to combat these destructive influences. Well, we'll begin tonight in chapter 1. Let's read verses 3 through 8. And the king spake unto Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, that he should bring certain of the children of Israel and of the king's seed and of the prince's, children in whom was no blemish, but well-favored and skillful in all wisdom and cunning in knowledge and understanding science, and such as had ability in them to stand in the king's palace, in whom they might teach the learning and the tongue of the Chaldeans. And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. Now among these were of the children of Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, unto whom the prince of the eunuchs gave names. For he gave unto Daniel the name Belteshazzar, and to Hananiah of Shadrach, and to Mishael of Meshach, and to Azariah of Abednego. But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself." So, picking up where we left off last week, we see in verse 5 that these young Hebrews are placed into a three-year training program. And isn't it interesting that that was enough time for them to teach all that they felt like they needed to know, to learn a different language, proficient enough to be able to stand in the king's palace. I mean, I couldn't learn a language in six years. They learned it in three Bible commentator Adam Clark, he lived from 1760 to 1832, and I found his comment on this interesting. He he lived in Northern Ireland, and he's reflecting upon the educational system in his day. (laughs) And he wrote this, quote, This was deemed a sufficient time to acquire the Chaldee language, and the sciences peculiar to that people. I suppose they had good introductory books, able teachers, and a proper method. Or else they would have been obliged, like us, to send their children seven years to school and as many years to the university to teach them any tolerable measure of useful or ornamental literature. And he adds an exclamation point. Oh, how reproachful to the nations of Europe, and particularly to our own, is this backward mode of instruction and what is generally learned after this vast expense of time and money and little Latin, Greek, and mathematics, perhaps a little moral philosophy, and by this they are entitled, not qualified, to teach others, and especially to teach the people the important science of salvation. To such shepherds the hungry sheep look up and are not fed, and if all are not such, no thanks to our plan of national education. And, and I read that and I thought, man, this guy, he's ranting about this in the late 1700s. That's how he felt in his day, for an education, that would be 7 to 14 years. And our children get a 13-year K through 12. And then you can add to that various degrees. Associate degree, bachelor's degree, master's degree, doctor's programs. And, and, and all told, you can spend anywhere from 13 to 24 years depending on the degree, uh, the degree program. And, and listen, it can go several years longer than that. Very easily in some cases. I imagine how Adam Clark would feel today in our system of education. I think we can rightly echo some of his same sentiments. Now, I'm, I'm all for proper education. Amen. The problem I have is the improper curriculum which has been forced into our public education system and the amount of wasted time along the way. I'm a, I grew up in public school. I know how much time they waste. The Chaldeans were able to take a teenager pull them away from their homeland and their family, and achieve what they wanted to in three years. That's amazing. I don't think we give kids enough credit. And and three years is such an interesting amount of time. As I was pondering this today, um, I I thought about how I I have always said, I look at somebody and I give them three years. And I say, at the end of three years, you're going to know whether they're serious about this or not. And for the most part, that's been proven true. And and as I thought about this, I I was reminded of how Jesus had three and a half years with His disciples. Well, that got me to wondering, are there other examples in the Bible of, of three years other than our text? And I was surprised at what I found. This is not at all inclusive for time's sake, but Solomon told Shimei he needed to dwell in Jerusalem for the rest of his life or he was going to put him to death. He said, don't even cross over the brook Kidron, which if you know the layout, that's like a half a mile from the Temple Mount or so. It's not that far. And the Bible says that after three years, he left Jerusalem. Something about three years. It's like the, the commandment of the king all of a sudden didn't have the same weight that it once did, and it revealed what was really in his heart. He no longer feared. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, after he took over the kingdom. In three years, he forsook the law of God. It was during his, his third year reign, and he showed what was in his heart. The king of Assyria besieged Samaria, which was the capital city of the house of Israel, and then after three years, he took it. Perhaps God was waiting to see if what their response would be. When Nebuchadnezzar first came to Jerusalem, he besieges it for three years, but after that, Jehoiakim rebelled, and things were escalated. And Jehoiakim showed whether or not he was going to submit. Jesus, in the parable of the fig tree, speaking of Israel, said in Luke 13, 6, a certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came and sought fruit thereon and found none. And this was a three-year period that the man looked for fruit. And Jesus said, cut it down. The man said, give me another year. I'll fertilize it. I'll take care of it. and Let's see if it bears fruit then. God told Israel when they entered the land, they needed to wait three years until they could eat the fruit off the fruit trees they planted. And only after three years would it be considered holy uh, to the Lord. Now, obviously, there's some agricultural reasons there, but there's also a principle I find there that's very applicable. There's something about three years which seems to reveal what's truly in a person's heart. I know there's exceptions, you know, I, I get that. But I've rarely seen someone drop out if they stayed faithful beyond their third year. Those who I've seen drop out of church entirely, and and I don't mean just go to a different church, but move out of church entirely are usually those within their first three years. And, And just think about your past experiences and you'll find this to be largely true. And like I said, there are exceptions, but usually after three years, if they're staying faithful, they'll start to bear fruit that remains. And that's the key. And, and I don't know, maybe there's something that God's saying, don't eat of don't eat that fruit in the first three years. And, and so after three years, you begin to see some things. And I know this from my own testimony. I know it took Adrian and I three years until we got our hearts right. And we started walking with the Lord properly. And then it was, I don't know, I hope less time than three years after that. But it was clear at that point that we were, we were all in. And so I, I know this to be true. In my own life, and I've said it before, but this is why I try to get the young people to listen to me when I tell them what you do in your, your later teens and your 20s, those habits you form in those years are what is going to follow you probably for the rest of your life to some extent. And, and again, there's exceptions. But this is why advertisers focus on the 20s to 30s, and after that, they, they're not really trying to get your business because you're already sold. You're using Colgate instead of Crest. And so those those late teen years and those early 20s, they are critical years in a person's life, and it will reveal what was in their heart all along. And so here's these four Hebrews. They're taken captive into a strange land. They're probably teenagers. They're put on a three-year plan of intense indoctrination. And no doubt after three years, the Chaldeans would know what manner of captives they had. And that got me thinking about the military. Maybe that's why the average enlistment is four years. Let's reassess this thing after four years and see where your heart's at. Well, anyway. In verses 6 and 7, part of this Chaldean programming was to give these captives Chaldean names. You may recall earlier in our Sunday morning series through Genesis that the ability to name something or someone shows dominion over that place or person. And when the Chaldeans here are changing their names, it's a way for them to signify, we are in authority over you. We have dominion over you. And by them receiving these Chaldean names, they are demonstrating their submission to the Babylonians. And so they take away their God-honoring names, and they give them Chaldean names that honor the pagan gods in Babylon. Babylon. You'll find some slight variations in the meanings that I'm about to give you because there's so many different sources out there, and some of these are hard to ascertain. But in general, you'll find these following meanings. Daniel means, God is my judge. Hananiah means, favored of God, or God is gracious to me. Mishael speaks of the strength of God and means, God is my help, or who is comparable to God? And Azariah means God has helped or whom God helps. Now these are great Hebrew names, amen? And, and these names were for a purpose. And when you define these Chaldean names, it's much more difficult. But the bottom line is they were changing their names to honor Babylonian deities. Daniel's name was changed to Belteshazzar, which means Baal hath hid and treasured. Baal was their chief god, and you can find different names uh, for that, but... Some put it simply as Belteshazzar, meaning Bel's prince. And that was the chief god of the Babylonians. Hananiah's name was changed to Shadrach, which means the inspiration of the sun, S-U-N, or the messenger messenger of the sun, or inspired or illumined by the sun god, which some see as a reference to the moon. Like I said, there's some difficulty here. And the Babylonians worship both the sun and the moon. Mishael's name was changed to Meshach, whose meaning is very difficult. I found so many differences here. But Matthew Henry was of the opinion that it speaks of the goddess Shak, and he writes, under the name Venus was worshipped. I don't know. Of course, Venus is the goddess of love. Some say it has a reference to the earth and some to the moon god. Azariah's name was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of the shining fire. The Babylonians also worshipped fire. And some think this may have reference to worshipping mercury. We kind of see that show up in the New Testament with Paul. And so you can research all that more if you want, but you can see how the Babylonians were guilty of worshipping the creation more than the Creator. And they dedicated these four Hebrews to their gods. One put it this way, that their names refer to their four prominent gods, their chief god, the sun god, the earth god, and the fire god. I don't know about all that. I'm not well versed in Babylonian. Amen. But whatever the most accurate meanings are, we know names in those days were a big deal. Right? Today, maybe they don't carry as much weight. But they had been given godly names in Judah to keep God in remembrance as they went about their lives, to keep God always before them. And now in captivity they're given names which honor false gods as now they are trained in the service of the Babylonians. Ecclesiastes 12.1 says, Remember now thy Creator in the days of thy youth. But their names were designed to make them forget the God of their youth. Instead of being consecrated to God as their parents intended by giving them their godly names, they are now being dedicated to pagan gods. And so what the Chaldeans are doing is they are absorbing them into their culture. They wanted to take away their distinctiveness as Hebrews. They wanted to assimilate them into their Babylonian philosophy. And I'm certain, I shouldn't say I'm certain, I would imagine many fell victim to this indoctrination program because when they were carried out of Judah, all they had was a shell of their religion. Amen? If they didn't, they wouldn't have been taken captive in the first place. And listen, that's the problem. Young people leave home, they only have an outer shell of Christianity. And it's easily broken and it falls apart because there's nothing inside. The Chaldeans here are working them over to get them to forget their God. In addition to changing their location and their names, we see that they fed them well in verse 5. Amen? I bypassed this earlier because it's a good segue into verse 8. But it says, And the king appointed them a daily provision of the king's meat and of the wine which he drank, so nourishing them three years, that at the end thereof they might stand before the king. So in verse 3, you'll see we were told that these were taken in the first round of the captivity or these who were taken in the first round of this captivity were those who were of some nobility. They were of the king's seed. They were of princes in Judah. Therefore, this diet that the king Nebuchadnezzar is providing them may in part be a generous gesture to their station in life back in Judah. Though now they're captives, they are no ordinary captives, right? This is not the, the quote-unquote common man. These are children that would have grown up to be in a position of authority in Judah. And, and we see it that when a nation captures another king they, um, or they capture another kingdom, they will take those who are of nobility and give them a certain treatment. They'll often kill the king, amen, <laughs> But those other ones, they, we, we can see that sometimes they treat them a little bit better. And, and really, this makes sense, doesn't it? And, and for, for many reasons that the king would treat them the way that he's doing because they're going to stand before him one day. And, and you want those guys on your side. Amen? And so it makes sense that they're feeding them well. And, and we'll talk about this more next time as we progress in this chapter. But um, this move of feeding them, it, it, it eased their transition into captivity. One of the hardest things for me moving to South Dakota was no good southern food. It was captivity to me. Adrian eased my transition. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimately, though, I I think we would understand that this move is probably meant to endear them to the king, to their new country, and to make them understand that you got it good here. Don't you want this kind of life? Don't you want to live in Babylon? Don't you want to stand before the king? You may not think it's a big deal in our day, but going all the way back to Genesis 3, food is a big deal in the Bible. Uh, Through a person's stomach, you can get their heart. How about that? If you want them on your side, you, you feed them well enough. You don't have to look very hard to see what the promise of free food has done to our country. Many will vote a certain way based off of the goodies. The free goodies. And you can easily bend a people to your will through their stomachs. See also your children. (laughs) Especially when they're itty-bitty, amen? Food and water have always been great motivators. Remember the woman at the well as she's conversing with Jesus? She's not quite connecting the dots yet about her salvation. She said to Jesus, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Free me from this burden. And so the king is using his food to capture the heart of the captives. He's trying to draw them to himself, earn their loyalty. He wants them to love their new country, and he gives them these favorable living conditions. And of course, the hope at the end of this three-year program is that they have forgotten everything in Judah, that they have got no desire to return. Now, isn't it interesting how they submitted themselves to this captivity and allowed their names to be radically changed? After all, they aren't ignorant. They knew what all this uh, meant that's taking place. And though it was years from our text, I think it's noteworthy to reference Jeremiah. In Jeremiah chapter 9, he writes to the captives in Babylon. And this is what you'll read in Jeremiah 29 verses 4 through 7. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, unto all that are carried away captives, whom I have caused to be carried away from Jerusalem unto Babylon. Now listen to what He tells them. He says, Build ye houses, dwell in them, and plant gardens, and eat the fruit of them. Take ye wives, and beget sons and daughters, and take wives for your sons, and give your daughters to husbands, that they may bear sons and daughters, that ye may be increased there, and not diminished." and seek the peace of the city, whether I have caused you to be carried away captives, and pray unto the Lord for it. For in the peace thereof ye shall have peace. Now that's interesting to me, especially our fighting fundamentalist. Amen? God wanted the captives to embrace their time in this 70-year captivity in Babylon. He wanted them to go about their normal day-to-day life. And He's telling them, if you resist, you're only going to make it worse. And he, he says, you need, to, you need to seek peace where you're at. and You need to pray for peace. Pray for your city that you're in because if they have peace, you'll have peace. I believe Alistair Begg rightly called this cooperation without compromise. And he communicated that this is the most difficult life to maintain in this world below as a believer. You see, it's easy to swing the pendulum to one extreme or the other. It's, it's easy to be so extreme that you're so obstinate that you resist to death and you're of no value. And it's so easy to swing the pendulum back the other way that you just give in entirely and you have nothing of value. But it can be difficult at times to maintain the right balance. Let me put it in a phrase you'll, rec- you'll recognize. We are in the world, but we are not of the world. The Christian life takes discernment, and that takes the Holy Spirit. There are issues that we must draw a line in the sand in. But then there's times we need to learn to take a more passive approach. Jeremiah 29 is becoming more applicable in the day in which we live. We are in captivity in a sense as we patiently await our heavenly Jerusalem. But we should pray for America. Amen? We should pray for our country. We should pray for her peace because the peace of America means peace to us. And in some respects, we have to embrace our station in life. We have to live in this world below. It's okay to build houses. It's okay to plant gardens. It's okay to have a spouse. It's okay to have children. We want believers to increase, going back to what Jeremiah was saying, and the way we do that is we increase our tribe. Amen. We raise our children for God, but at the same time, we need to understand this world is not our final home. And so we're challenged to find a way to live now in a a post-Christian society that has a different educational mindset and still stand for God while seeking peace, praying for the strange land that we find ourselves in because we are strangers outwardly living in a wicked world. And this is interesting. Joseph was faced with a similar situation as a Hebrew while enslaved in Egypt. Once he was elevated, Pharaoh called Joseph's name, (laughs) zephnath <laughs> pa Something like that. He gave him to wife Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar's priest of On. He was suffering the consequences of his captivity, but without compromise. Is everybody with me? Because this is, this is deeper than I'm probably communicating. There are things that we have to be prepared to say yes to. There's things we have to be prepared to say no to. Jesus demonstrated this when some haters came to Him one day, tempting Him in Luke 20, verses 22 through 25. Is it lawful for us to give tribute unto Caesar or no? But He perceived their craftiness and said unto them, Why tempt ye me? Show me a penny. Whose image and superscription hath it? They answered and said, Abraham Lincoln. No. They answered and said, Caesar's. And he said unto them, Render therefore unto Caesar the things which be Caesar's, and unto God the things which be God's. And so here's these four Hebrew young men. They're prepared to say yes to a a new location. They're prepared to say yes to new names. But when we come to verse 8, we find that they are not prepared to say yes to a new diet. Huh? Why are they accepting everything else but saying no here? But Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested of the prince of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. And as, as we'll continue through this chapter, we'll see that this is actually all four of them, even though it's speaking directly of Daniel right now. Now, why would these Hebrews submit themselves to the new, locate, new location Submit themselves to new pagan names, but then resist the king's food. Well, it all has to do with living with a clear conscience before God. This is something we've been talking about in our Sunday night series through Acts. Godly names are good. The law of God didn't require certain names though. You with me? Though they had been given a land, this captivity was of God. There's nothing they can do to change it. You're stuck in this world below. There's nothing you're going to do to change that. However, they were required to keep a certain diet under the law of God. God commanded this so that they could show a difference between holy and unholy, clean and unclean. And all of that that God commanded them was a part of God's way to show the nations around Israel that there's a God in heaven. The king's food here in our text, it was food which had been offered to their false gods. And I'm sure some of the food, some of the animal foods, wouldn't have been clean animals. And they had to make a decision there, because while there are certain things they could not do, they could keep their dietary laws in a strange land. They were without their temple... They were without a functioning priesthood in captivity, and therefore they were without a sacrificial system. But Daniel purposed in his heart that what I can do, I will do. And I can keep this dietary law in a strange land, and in doing so, I can still honor God dwelling among pagans. I can't do anything about my location. I can't really do anything about my name if He's going to find this proper balance but I can do something. So we're pilgrims and strangers living in a foreign land. That's what we are. But we do have to live in this world below. We have to find a way to live in this world while not being of this world. There are things that we might be able to cooperate with, and there are things we might have to say no to altogether. And all the while, we need to be seeking peace. It can be difficult. I know what new employees are taught when they get a job. You are almost immediately indoctrinated into the ways of transgenderism and homosexuals and, and how you need to behave and act and all these things. And you've got a decision to make. There's some things you've got to say yes to, there's some things you've got to say no to. And it can be difficult at times. Remember, Jesus did not lead a political revolution. He showed that there was a God in heaven, and He never defiled Himself along the way. And He showed this world there was a God in heaven. How was He able to do that in a Gentile-controlled Judea? And so where are you at? Have you learned not to compromise your walk with God Would still be able to live in the world in a way that you can still reach others? You understand what I'm saying? Because sometimes people can grow so cantankerous that no one wants your brand of Christianity. You may be so compromising that nobody wants your brand of Christianity either. What good is it if it doesn't change you? Right? Somewhere in the middle, and I'm not advocating compromise tonight, but somewhere we have to find the balance of living among unbelievers in this world while not defiling ourselves. We have to know when to say yes and when to say no. We have to make an impact on the loss by how we live and, and what we say. And there's a way to do this that will be pleasing to the Lord. I've known some people, especially from the stripe that... that, that Of Christianity we're in I've known probably many people that have taken that side of I hate everything because I'm so holy guess what nobody wants to be in your church nobody wants to be around you nobody wants your God am I making sense tonight there's a way to please God in this whole process we need to seek the peace of the city where we live and that makes logical sense. We need to seek for peace because if there's peace here, we'll have peace. And I don't want to send our sons and daughters off to war either. And so we ought to pray for it. I really hope I'm communicating this effectively enough. I'll probably have to pick this up next week because we're out of time and try to maybe get a little bit deeper here to explain it unless I am making sense. But if I've confused anybody, you come and talk to me, amen. And I'll see if I can't clarify it a little bit. But uh, understand the situation we're in. We are captives in a foreign land, so to speak. And we have a decision to make tonight. Are we going to walk out of here and not defile ourselves and yet try to win the lost in a way that will be pleasing to our Lord and Savior? Would you pray with me, please?